The Heroism of Tamar. This is a true story that took place in the 1970s. Rabbi Dr. Nachum Rabinovich, then principal of Jews College, the rabbinic training seminary in London where I was a student and teacher, was approached by an organization that had been given an unusual opportunity to engage in interfaith dialogue. A group of African bishops wanted to understand more about Judaism. Would the principal be willing to send his senior students to engage in such a dialogue in a chateau in Switzerland? To my surprise, he agreed. He told me that he was skeptical about Jewish-Christian dialogue in general because he believed that over the centuries the church had been infected by an anti-Semitism that was very difficult to overcome. At that time, though, he felt that African Christians were different. They loved Tanakh and its stories. They were, at least in principle, opening to understanding Judaism on its own terms. He didn't add, though I knew it was in his mind since he was one of the world's greatest experts on Maimonides, that the great 12th century sage held an unusual attitude to dialogue. Maimonides believed that Islam was a general, genuinely monotheistic faith, while Christianity in those days was not. Nonetheless, he held that it was permitted to study Tanakh with Christians, but not Muslims, since Christians believed that Tanakh, what they called the Old Testament, was the word of God, while Muslims believed the Jews had falsified the text. So we went. It was an unusual group, the Smicha class of Jews College, together with the top class of the yeshiva in Montreux, where the like Rabbi Yechiel Weinberg, author of Saride Eish, and one of the world's foremost halachists, had taught. For three days, the Jewish group davened and benched with special intensity. We learned Gemara each day. And for the rest of the time, we had an unusual, even transformative encounter with the African bishops, ending with a Hasidic-style tish, during which we shared with the Africans our songs and stories, and they taught us theirs. At three in the morning, we finished by dancing together. We knew we were different. We knew that there were deep divides between our respective faiths, but we'd become friends. Perhaps that's all we should seek. Friends don't have to agree in order to stay friends. And friendships can sometimes help heal the world. On the morning after our arrival, however, an event occurred that left a deep impression on me. The sponsoring body, a global Jewish organization was a secular one, and to keep it within their frame of reference, the group had to include at least one non-Orthodox Jew, a woman studying for the rabbinate. We, the Smicha and Yeshiva students, were davening Shachris, the morning service, in one of the lounges in the chateau, when the reformed woman entered wearing talus and tefillin and sat down in the middle of the group. This is something the students hadn't encountered before. What were they to do? There was no machitza, there was no way of separating themselves. How should they react to a woman wearing talus and tefillin and praying in the midst of a group of men? They ran up to the Rav in a state of great agitation and asked what they should do. Without a moment's hesitation, he quoted to them the saying of the sages, a person should be willing to throw himself into a furnace of fire rather than shame another person in public. With that, he ordered them back to their seats, and the prayer continued. 
The moral of that moment never left me. The Rav, for the past 32 years, head of the yeshiva in Malaya Dumim, was, and is, one of the great halachists of our time. He knew immediately how serious were the issues at stake, men and women praying together without a mechitza between them, and the complex issue about whether a woman may or may not wear a talisman to fill in. The issue was anything but simple. But he also knew that halacha is a systematic way of turning the great ethical and spiritual truths into a tapestry of deeds, and that one must never lose the larger vision in an exclusive focus on the details. Had the students insisted that the woman pray elsewhere, they would have put her to shame, the way Ellie did when he saw Hannah praying and thought she was drunk. Never, ever shame someone in public. That was the transcending imperative of the hour, and that was the mark of a great-souled man. To have been his student for more than a decade, I count as one of the great privileges of my life. The reason I tell this story here is that it's one of the most power, one of the powerful and unexpected lessons of our parasha. Yehuda, Judah, the brother who proposed selling Joseph into slavery, had gone down to Canaan, where he married a local Canaanite woman. The phrase, gone down, was rightly taken by the sages as full of meaning, just as Jacob had been brought down to Egypt, so Judah had been morally and spiritually brought down. Here was one of Jacob's sons doing what the patriarchs insisted on not doing, marrying into the local population. It's a tale of sad decline. He marries his firstborn son, heir, to a local woman, Tamar. An obscure verse tells us that he sinned and died. Judah then married his second son, Onan, to her under a pre-mosaic form of levirate marriage, whereby a brother is bound to marry his sister-in-law if she has been left widowed without children. Onan, reluctant to father a child that would be regarded not as his but his deceased brother's, practiced a form of coitus interruptus that to his day carries his name. For this too he died. Having lost two of his sons, Judah was reluctant to give his third, Shelah, to Tamar in marriage. The result was that she was left as a living widow, bound to marry her brother-in-law, whom Judah was withholding, but unable to marry anyone else. After many years seeing that her father-in-law, by this time a widower himself, was reluctant to marry her to Shelah, she decided on an audacious course of action. She removed her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil, and positioned herself at a point where Judah was likely to see her on his way to the sheep shearing. Judah saw her, took her to be a prostitute, and engaged her services. As surety for the payment, he had promised her she insisted that he leave his seal, cord, and staff. Judah duly returned the next day with the payment, but the woman was nowhere to be seen. He asked the locals the whereabouts of the temple prostitute. The text at this point uses the word Kadesha, cult prostitute, rather than Zonah, thus deepening Judah's offense. But no one had seen such a person in the locality. Puzzled, Judah returned home. Three months later, he heard that Tamar was pregnant. He leapt to the only conclusion he could draw, namely that she had had a physical relationship with another man while bound in law to his son Shelah. She had 
committed adultery, for which the punishment was death. Tamar was brought out to face her sentence. She came holding the staff and seal that Judah instantly recognized as his own. She said, I'm pregnant by the person to whom these objects belong. Judah realized what had happened and said, Tzadkam Imeni, she is more righteous than I am. This moment is a turning point in history. Judah is the first person in the Torah explicitly to admit he was wrong. We don't realize it yet, but this seems to be the moment at which he required the depth of character necessary for him to become the first real Baltshuva. We see this years later when he, the man who proposed selling Joseph as a slave, becomes the man who is willing to spend the rest of his life in slavery so that his brother Benjamin can go free. I've argued elsewhere that it's from here we learn the principle that a penitent stands higher than even a perfectly righteous individual. Judah, the penitent, becomes the ancestor of Israel's kings, while Joseph, the righteous, is only a viceroy, Mishneh Lamelech, second to the king. Thus far, Judah. But the real hero of the story was Tamar. She had taken an immense risk by becoming pregnant. Indeed, she was almost killed for it. She had done so for a noble reason to ensure that the name of her late husband was perpetuated. But she took no less care to avoid Judah being put to shame. Only he and she knew what had happened. Judah could acknowledge his error without loss of face. It was from this episode that the sages derived the rule articulated by Rabbi Rabinovich that morning in Switzerland, rather risk being thrown into a fiery furnace than shame someone else in public. It is thus no coincidence that Tamar, a heroic non-Jewish woman, became the ancestor of David, Israel's greatest king. There are, in fact, striking similarities between Tamar and the other heroic woman in David's ancestry. <clears throat> the Moabite woman we know as Ruth. There's an ancient Jewish custom on Shabbat and festivals to cover the chalot or matzah while holding the glass of wine over which Kiddush is being made. The reason is so as not to put the chalot to shame while it's being, as it were, passed over in favor of the wine. There are some very religious Jews, sadly, who will go to great lengths to avoid shaming an inanimate loaf of bread but have no compunction in putting their fellow Jew to shame if they regard them as less religious than they are. That's what happens when we remember the halakha, but forget the underlying moral principle behind it. Never put anyone to shame. That is what Tamar taught Judah, and what a great rabbi of our time taught those who were privileged to be his students. <clears throat>